Would you join me in prayer? Our Lord and God, thank you for this prayer that we will study this morning. May our minds and hearts be attentive and give us grace to do as you will. Oh Lord, my God, let, let the words of my mouth be in line with what your word says and be faithful to your infallible scripture. Lord, I pray that this text will encourage the downtrodden and awaken the apathetic. I pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So what did God do before creation? Now, I asked this as a child, and many of you have wondered this. You've had kids probably ask this question to you. Well, we read, in, in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth from Genesis 1.1. Okay, in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. So what did he do before? Well, we don't know. Uh, I could say, well, God is always in the eternal now, and so there wasn't a before because there wasn't time, and it's just eternity. But that's really speculation, and we're never given a, a clear indication of what happened before. To quote Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed to us, revealed, belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Okay, so we, we don't know when we don't need to know. If we needed to know, he would have told us. But he did tell us one thing. God did something before creation. He planned something. He planned the redemption of a sinful people. He planned to unite this creation to himself. Why would he plan something like this? Well, as we've gone through Genesis 1 and part of Genesis 2 the past month, things seem to be great, don't they? Well, here's a spoiler alert. Something really bad happens in chapter 3. Chapter 3 explains a whole lot. And I won't go into a whole lot of detail. Pastor Blair will go over this the next few weeks. But chapter 3 is our reality. And it's the only reality we've ever known. We've only known sin, death, and strife. And so that makes it so, makes it so difficult for us to imagine the beginning of things being very good and our destiny. Well, did, did God say, oops, I messed up now, I'm going to have to start over, or man messed up, so I'm going to have to start over again. No, he already had a plan that would be accomplished despite and through what happened in Genesis 3 of Genesis. But why? Why would God allow this to happen? Why would his plan include a crooked line, a crooked point A to point B? Wouldn't it have just been easier and better if all these things described in chapter 3 in Genesis and up until now in history, if they would never would have happened? 
Maybe you have trouble sleeping at night thinking about these things. And in a world of chaos, God has a plan. Well, you can spare me the cliches there. But yes, this is a cliche. But it's true. It's true. God has done something for us, his children, the church. He has planned before creation began a gift for his people. He didn't spare his people from suffering. He didn't spare himself from suffering. But as he is glorified, his people will one day be glorified. He has created a people for his own possession before the world began to abundantly gift. And none of this was because of their goodness. None of this was a wage that they earned. And it's all out of sheer declarative grace. And these children that he chose to bless were some of the worst of the worst of sinners. But why? For what purpose was this plan? What's the end goal of this plan? Well, this morning we'll examine the introduction and thanksgiving section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And he, through the infallible inspiration of the Holy Spirit, answers the reason why. Now, this letter was one of Apostle Paul's later letters sent to a few congregations in the area of Ephesus, an area not known for having a godly background. It's a letter about God's cosmic plan of the ages through his people, the church. And yes, God has planned from before the beginning a story of redemption that will culminate in heaven and earth being united again one day. In the meantime, his church is a display of what is to come in the future. And so we will begin with Paul's introduction and opening prayer from Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. So please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, just take the Black Pew Bible in front of you and turn to page 976. In this text this morning, we'll see God's plan in Christ through us, God's work in Christ through us, and then we'll see how we are to respond because of this. But firstly, God's plan in Christ through us. Look at verses 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul here is writing to the saints in Ephesus. He writes that he is an apostle of Jesus by the will of God. 
It's not by Paul's plan or orchestration. It's all because of God's plan before the ages. God planned that this Hebrew of Hebrews, this persecutor of the church, would one day be the apostle to the Gentiles. Now talk about a strange plan there. A strange plan that could only be explained by God. And that greeting sets up what he's going to say in the rest of this letter. But then then he, he, he says he writes to the saints. He's writing to the saints. Literally, the holy ones of Ephesus. Now, let, let's pause there for a second. This is significant. Why? Why is this so significant? These are predominantly Gentile congregations. These congregations are full of former unclean pagans. In fact, in, in, in Ephesus, this is where the, the temple of the Greek goddess Artemis, the queen of heaven, she's in this town. So wait a minute. Israel is God's chosen people. We just read that in Deuteronomy earlier in this service. God chose this family, the sons of Jacob, Israel, to be his people. Not other nations, right? These people, the Ephesians, were disgusting, evil, pagan Gentiles. But hold on a second. Yet now they are called saints. How is this? Were they just an afterthought to God? Were these Gentiles just plan B? The majority of Israel rejected Jesus, so God just changed course and chose the Gentiles? Did God mess up, or did he had to start over? Or did man mess up, and God had to start over? How are these people saints now? Well, let's look at Paul's prayer that follows this greeting. Paul begins this letter with a, a beautiful hymn-like prayer. Like all the, the prayers in the New Testament letters, this one is probably derived from song. Prayers and singing go together. Good theology must be sung. And what we're seeing here in verses 3 through 14 is the longest sentence in the New Testament. And it's a prayer that reflects the synagogue tradition that the Jewish leaders would recite before the congregation. And again, the prayers were sung. It is a prayer of praise that begins with, Blessed be our God and Father. Blessed be our God and Father. So what is the praise that the apostle leads for the congregations of Ephesus? Well, it is a praise for God's plan for and work in his people, the church. First of all, he praises God for blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, these specific blessings aren't temporal He's not praising God for for wealth and health. He's praising God for the eternal and unchangeable blessings we have in Christ. And what are these eternal blessings? Well, he begins with God's plan for us, his church. God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. What did God do before creation? This right here. We as believers are chosen in Christ in love before the ages. We love because he first loved us. 
He initiated salvation. And he loves his people dearly. Going back to Ephesus, you and I, like the Ephesians, are Gentiles. None of us, as far as I know, are Israelites. However, you and I are not plan B. You and I are not mistakes. You and I are not just God's settling because other people rejected it. He planned our redemption from before the beginning. And his choosing is not arbitrary. Paul explains that it is out of God's abundant love and grace. He didn't see us in the future and say, hey, those, those people are good people. Therefore I'm, therefore, I'm going to choose them. Or that's a good-looking guy. I'm going to choose him. Or that, that lady is talented. I'm going to choose her. Or those people will believe in me. Therefore, I'm going to choose them. He didn't choose us because of anything meritorious in us. It is all by his abundant love and declarative grace. Listen, he created us to be the objects of his love. He's not the seeker of objects of love like men, but a creator of objects of love. And this choosing is for something. He chose us to be something. And what is that? To be holy and blameless before him. He chose us to be a separate nation. That's what holy means, separate, set apart. A people for his own possession to display his character. He chose us to be a, a people who display the fruit of the Spirit. To be a people who sacrifice for one another. To be a people who walk in justice and humility. Now what's controversial about these statements is not the predestination or election. Words like that. Those things would likely not be controversial in this, this context. But no, as far as that goes, no, the controversy for this context, these statements that Paul's making would be statements exclusively made about the people of Israel. They are the chosen people. They are the predestined ones. But wait a minute. Paul's including the Gentiles who believe in Christ as part of the chosen people as well. Yes. And he will elaborate a little bit that, about that a little bit more in this letter. Israel was not the end of, of his redemption. His choosing of the nation of Israel was for the ultimate redemption of the nations. And then Paul then states that God the Father has predestined us in him in love. Now, you remember, notice and remember these prepositional phrases. In him and in love. In Christ. Our election is always connected to Christ. We are elected in him. We are elected to be united to him. It's not a, a bland, abstract election. It is connected to the inseparable union with Christ. And the Father has mapped out our destination for us. Now, I know some of you are uber planners. You love planning trips. You love all the details from the hotels to the flights to the daily itinerary. I'm, I'm thankful for people like you because that's not me. 
you love to plan the trip in totality for the family. You've picked the destination and the means to get there and the activities once there. God the Father has planned this all for us before we were ever born, even before creation was born. This planned destiny is not arbitrary, and it's by Christ's work. And it's, not, it's also not apart from the volition of his creatures. They willingly submit to his lordship. What is his plan? What is his plan? That we would be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ, our elder brother. Our destiny was adoption by God. So, have you ever heard the phrase, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Well, here you go. Here it is. His plan for you is your adoption as his child. We're not natural children per se. Our Lord Jesus is the natural child. However, by faith in Christ, we are made God's children by adoption. And you know all the rights and privileges adopted children have with natural born children? All of the same ones. What's his is ours. Make note of the personal pronouns he uses here. Us, or we, is continually, continually repeated throughout this prayer. And that's important. That's important. Our election is corporate. He has chosen us, his church. Of course, that's going to apply individual election, but the emphasis here is on the corporate election. The Christian life is not an individualistic life. It is a corporate life. It's a 1 Corinthians 12 life. We are members one to another. When I look at my brother and sister in Christ, we see each other as brothers and sisters who have been elected to be united to our elder brother Christ. How can I want, not want to be with my true family? We have a bond that's stronger than blood family. We take part of the necessary and essential means of grace together, hearing of the Word of God together, praying together, the Lord's Supper together. We sing praises together. Our election is primarily corporate. We, us. And all of these plans are in accordance with His will. And all of it is to the praise of his glory and grace. Make a mental note of that, by the way. And all of this, he has blessed us in the beloved, who is his son, Jesus Christ. Now, how many of you are greatly ashamed of your life before you knew Jesus? How many of you look at how evil and wicked you were? When I think about the things I've done, the thoughts I have had, the cruel ways I've treated people, all the time I wasted on silly and trivial things, I think to myself, oh Lord, what a wretch I was. Was there anything in me that deserved anything good from God? No, not at all. But God, who is rich in abundant mercy, started working on me, practically speaking, in time, 
in my teens and drew me to himself. You, when you came to know the Lord, you realized God's grace on you. And as John Newton wrote in the memorable hymn, Amazing Grace, he said, How gracious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Now, why did God plan all this, our salvation? Why? For his glory and out of love for us, his beloved. We are beloved because we are in him. Our unity with Christ as his bride is his love for us. The letter of Ephesians is about God's glorious mystery throughout the ages displayed in his church, the object of his love. So how can we not sing his praises? For this is what we were created to do. This is what he has elected us to do. That is what he's predestined us to do. That is what he's redeemed us to do. That leads us to the second theme of this prayer. God's work in Christ through us. Look at verses 7 through 14. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All of this plan was worked out in time. In time, 2,000 years ago, Christ came and redeemed us by his blood. He was punished for us. He died to pay the price to bring us back to fellowship with God. Because of this, we have forgiveness of sins, not by our payment, but by his. And all of this, as he says here, all of this was out of the abundant treasure trove of grace. He poured immensely, exceedingly on us. Now, is all this crazy? crazy? Is all this reckless? By no means. Look at verses 8 through 10, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's all in his wisdom and his mind, according to his perfect purpose, through his son Jesus, his plan before time to the consummation of the ages. Even the inclusion of the Gentiles, the mystery of God's will, as Paul speaks here later in this letter, was in God's salvation plan. Now, you know, the great thing about having the Bible is we know what happened in the past, our origins in Genesis. We know what will happen in the future in the book of Revelation. We know God's plan, not all the details, but we know his plan. And what is his plan for the future? To unite heaven and earth again. To unite himself with his people again. 
We know this from the final chapters of Revelation. As we talked about at Christmas time, we long for that day when all things are united in him, that is in Christ, and will remain like that forevermore. He will restore all things, and he will reign with his people, his beloved, the people he planned before all things. And in light of this, Paul continues to bless God in his prayer for the inheritance believers have. Now, inheritance was an important aspect of the family life for the Israelites. The firstborn son would receive the land and carry on the family property. Of course, what Paul is talking about here has to do with something more important and glorious than land and property. This inheritance that believers have is through our firstborn elder brother, Jesus Christ, that we have in the new Jerusalem, the new creation that all of us in Christ long for. This inheritance is our predestined future. It is our destiny. We are predestined to adoption and to inheritance with Jesus. Again, what's his is ours. Specifically, we think about ours, his, us, we, the church. Now, who specifically all all this is for? for all of those who place their hope and faith in Christ. Who are the elect? It's a great question. Who are the predestined ones? I love that question. Here's the answer. All of those who trust Jesus Christ. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ. As the fantastic Baptist preacher Adrian Rogers once said, who are the elect? The whosoever wills. If you believe Jesus, you're in this group. This debate over the details of God's foreknowledge and man's responsibility has not been solved over thousands of years, and we're not going to solve it this morning. We're not commanded to solve it. We are commanded to repent and believe. And just leave it at that. When our Father commands you to do something, you don't ask why or how, you just do it. Listen, if you are saved, it is all because of God's grace. It is all, all His work, not yours. It's all His doing. It's 100% His work, not yours. And on the flip side, if you are lost, it's all, it's all because of your stubbornness and rejection of him. It's 100% your fault. Salvation is like that Christmas or birthday gift. You didn't earn it, you just, you just receive it, thankfully. Now, in a few weeks, actually a couple weeks, I'm going to turn 37. I'm sure we will have a family thing and there'll be some gifts, Hopefully. Listen, I accomplished nothing by being 37 years old. God is the one who sustains my heartbeat. He can stop my heart, shut down my body whenever he so chooses. So my birthday is not my accomplishment, yet I get the gifts. Your birthday is not your accomplishment. He's the one who gives and sustains life. But yet we get the treats that we didn't earn, that he 
earned, as if we earned it. This is like our salvation. Now, we are not entirely passive in this as well. It's all of his grace, but it's active and it's through means. But you look in verse 13. You see that this plan is worked out in time. This plan from all eternity is worked out in time. Paul says, when you heard the word of truth, you believed. You responded. How is this plan before the ages worked out? Through the gospel being explained and someone believing. It is through means, what we call the ordinary means of grace. The gospel was explained to you, a means. People have been praying for your salvation, a means. God does his work through means. Your sanctification is an active process. Discipline is required. But at the end of the day, we know it's all God's work in and through us. God does his work through means. We also see all the persons of the Trinity involved in our salvation. How so? Well, God, we say that God the Father planned it. The Son accomplished it. But what about the Holy Spirit? Paul now in his prayer explains how the third person of the Trinity works in God's plan of salvation. God the Father planned it. God the Son worked it. And God the Spirit applied it. He applies this redemption. When we believe Jesus, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. In other words, we are set apart, grasped by God. And the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of the inheritance we will have in the future. So when people ask when I was saved, I can have three answers. From one angle, before creation began. From another angle, 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross for me. From another angle, when I was 17 years old at Whitesburg Baptist Church, hearing the gospel preach, the Holy Spirit regenerated me, and I believed the gospel. And since our regeneration, we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit continues to reveal more of Christ to us through the means of the Word. And because of the Word, because we're understanding of the Word, we know what is to come for us, an inheritance, an inheritance. Now imagine you get a gift, a small box. You open it, and lo and behold, there's a key. Now when you look at it, you can assume some things. I don't think you're going to assume someone bought you a key for a key collection. No, you would assume that there's probably a car waiting for you. The key is just the promise of what is to come. The promise of what is waiting for you. And that is indeed the Holy Spirit. He is given to those who believe as the promise of what is to come. He leads us in righteous living. He conforms us into the image of Christ. He gives us the peace in times of trial. He helps us battle against the flesh and against sin until one day the battle will be over and we will be with our beloved forever. And listen, all of this is to the praise of his glory and grace. And notice 
Notice that phrasing is repeated three times in that prayer. Three times. Why has God done all these things? In love, in Christ, to the praise of his glory. Now, are you here today and you don't know the Lord? You don't know God and you don't know if he knows you. You could know him today. How? Well, you must know this, that God is holy and perfect in all his ways, and he will judge every man and woman one day. The problem is that we are all sinners and rebels against him. We have done him wrong and are headed to eternity apart from his glorious grace and his presence. But God... And Christ came to this earth, lived the perfect, righteous life, holy life that we didn't. He died as a punishment for our sin and rose from the dead to purchase our salvation. And to receive this gift of forgiveness of sins and life in him, you must turn from your selfish, rebellious way to him. And believe that Christ died and rose from the grave. And if you trust Jesus, you will have life with him forever. Do you want life with him forever? Well, then call upon him now. He saves all who call upon him. And remember this. It was no accident that you were here today to hear the gospel. It was the Father's plan from before creation for you to hear this. And it was the Father's plan to save you. Now, Christian, do you look forward to this glorious inheritance of ours? Again, we didn't earn it. We're the child just receiving the unmerited gift. The knowledge of our inheritance, our glorious inheritance waiting for us, should change the way we pray, shouldn't it? We often pray for such trivial things. I do often. Now, we are commanded to pray for our day of bread, our, our physical needs, basically, it's true. It's so true. Yet our prayers are so often filled with requests for things not eternal. I wonder what percentage of our prayers is on requests like these. Provision, safety, health, surgeries. Good things. Good things. We should pray for them. But then I wonder how much of those requests are about temporal things. Temporal things that are here today and gone tomorrow. But look at this prayer. Look at this prayer. What is it filled with? Praise. And what is it praise for? God's eternal plan for his people. It's important to note that we should let the prayers of the Bible guide our daily prayers. Let's let praise be continuing on our lips. And why should praise be continuing on our lips? Well, just read this prayer of the Apostle Paul over and over again, and you will see why. You will see why. The beginning of this letter to the Ephesians shows us that we, his church, are called to praise God for his glorious plan and work in Christ through us. In your prayers this week, don't begin with requests. Begin with praise. 
And don't just begin with praise this week. Begin with the great praise praise for the great salvation of you, of us. Praise him for his glorious grace toward you, toward us. As we sing, lift up your voice and praise to him. We sing why? Because our glorious Lord redeemed us to be a praising people forever. Start your prayers with praise for his great salvation. Thank him for the, uh, his adoption of you as his child. Thank him for this, the glorious inheritance we have waiting for us. This is not to set aside the, the problems that we have in this everyday life that affects every single one of us. We still de- deal with temptation, sin, and death. But at the end of the day, I remember this. I remember this. And I, I think about beautiful songs, beautiful song lyrics. You know, I've never heard a beautiful song lyric that's not driven by pain. And I just think about the great salvation that we have. We praise, we lament, but we praise. We lament, but we praise. And there's a beauty about God's plan that seems so crooked and so strange to us, but there's a beauty of which we would be lacking if we didn't experience it. Again, Correct me if I'm wrong, I can't think of a beautiful song or the, the songs that bring you to tears that don't have a touch of pain in them. Just don't. But we have a glorious future awaiting for us. And notice these prayers, not just here in Ephesians, but notice the prayers in the New Testament are often not over trivial, temporal things. These things are eternal. Sure, there is no Nothing wrong with requests for things. There's not. But how many of our prayers are dedicated to praising him and thanking him for his great grace and salvation for us? Let that dominate your prayers this week. And when we meet as a church and pray corporately, what's the foundation of our prayers? And do we sing with zeal because we know what the Lord has done in our lives? And singing is our collective congregational prayer to God. We have to ask, where is the joy of our salvation? Oftentimes it is, I am faithless, but he remains faithful. Oftentimes I'm dry and, 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 and don't have that joy. But look at this, just the beauty of this prayer that he has saved us. I have forgiveness of sins. We have forgiveness of sins. Let not a prayer go by without thanking the Lord for saving us. Also, let the joy of, let the joy of our salvation and, and the praise for his glory be the fuel and foundation of our evangelism. Who knows who God has put before you by his orchestrated plan to hear the good news of Jesus Christ from you, from your lips? Again, letting the praise of his glorious plan of our salvation ever on our lips often kick drives. It kickstarts gospel conversations. And lastly, let's remember where we were before the Lord came into our lives. Reflect on his grace on us and run to him. Run to him with continual praise and thanksgiving. Heavenly Father, 
we praise you for you, for your plan to redeem us. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your accomplishing this redemption. Holy Spirit, we praise you for applying this redemption to our bodies and souls. May we rest in hope as we reflect on last week on our Sabbath rest, our eternal Sabbath rest that we look forward to, of which we just have a foretaste right now. Let us rest in this hope. May we be active and bold, knowing that you go before us. And let us praise you in what we say, sing, and do. Amen.